talking and we started to realize that there is a culture issue happening mm -hmm. that was that it was a consistent thread throughout every story we heard in that room and so we said who do we need to be as a field like what are our hopes and dreams for this profession if we want to put something forward what do we want that to be to really shift where we are hello and welcome to student affairs now i'm your host keith edwards Today, we're talking about reimagining the workforce in higher education and student affairs. ACPA has just released the report from the 21st Century Employment and Higher Education Task Force, and we are joined by ACPA President Dre Domingue and Task Force Co-Chair Rashonda Breeden to discuss the context, analysis of the roots in white supremacist culture, and recommendation, recommended antidotes for action. I'm a big fan. This is a terrifically insightful and helpful document. I'm so excited to learn more uh, from the folks who are joining with us today. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. This episode is sponsored by Leadershape. Go to leadershape.org to learn how they can work with you to create a just, caring, and thriving world. This episode is also sponsored by Vector Solutions, formerly EverFi. The trusted partner for more than 2,000 colleges and universities, Vector Solutions is the standard of care for student safety, well-being, and inclusion. As I mentioned, I'm your co-host, or I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach, and you can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm broadcasting from Minneapolis, Minnesota, at the intersections of the ancestral homelands of both the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples. Let's get to our conversation. I'm so grateful for the two of you for joining us today. Let's kick off with some introductions. And Dre, why don't you go ahead and get us started? Thanks, Keith. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, my given name is Andrea D. Domain. Everybody calls me Dre. Yep, like the rapper. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, I'm recording today um, from the ancestral land of the Catawba, just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, a lot about me. Um, <laughs> so my campus day job is at Davidson College. I am the chief strategy officer for student life there. It's a newer role um, after doing about 20 years working um, diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Um, I also am uh, currently one of the adjunct lecturers for UW Lacrosse, um, their mm -hmm. master's program and their doctoral program. Uh, so I do, I'm a scholar practitioner in that way. I'm probably most known right now as the current ACPA president, uh, so College uh, Student Educators International. Um, and for those that don't know much about us, we are one of the premier uh, associations. Um, our tagline is boldly transforming um, higher education. And we're um, mostly trying to uh, move and advance um, higher education through advocacy, outreach, professional development, and our research. Awesome. Thank you for being here. Rashonda, tell us a little bit more about you. I sure will. First, I want to say shout out to Dre. Um, Dre, you've been doing an amazing <laughs> job as president. And so I'm delighted to share this episode with you. But yeah, shout out to Dre, y'all. Yeah. Um, also, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. I'm Rashonda Breeden, she, her pronouns. I'm currently an assistant professor in educational leadership and higher education at East Carolina University, which is in Greenville, North Carolina. 
on the traditional homeland of the Tuscarora Indians. And so that's my day job. Uh, although I've been a faculty member um, for the last year now, I've also worked in higher education and student affairs for the last 13 years at historically black colleges and universities and historically white institutions. So I have a background in residential life, orientation, diversity programming, academic advising, college access, all the things, but my first love is housing. I am a housing mm -hmm. kid. <laughs> yes. And so um, <laughs> I love this work and I'm such a huge fan of the podcast. I also have to shout out doctors uh, Porter, Kroom and Soleil for their Black mm -hmm. Feminist Research episode. It's quickly becoming one of my favorites. Uh, so mm -hmm. go listen to that if you haven't. Um, and my connection to the topic. So I am currently the chair for the ACPA Presidential Task Force on 21st Century Employment in Higher ed Education, which we'll talk a little bit more about in just a second. But I don't want to just center myself. I definitely want to center all of the work and labor mm -hmm. done by the task force members who help contribute such a dynamic document. So shout out to all of y'all. We'll talk more about y'all later. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is essentially a labor of love from ACPA to its members. Awesome. So Dre, you're ACPA president. Each president yeah. typically has like a major initiative yeah. and a big impetus. Is this yours? Yes and no. All right. <laughs> so, well, how do we get yeah. here? How did this come sure, to be? Yeah. And then we'll talk about the yeah. task force. Yeah. So how I'm going to try here? to be succinct. Um, well, one, before I can even get into the task force, I think I just want to name that um, you know, higher education and employment has been an ongoing grappling for decades. And mm -hmm. so early on, different iterations, what have you. And so what we're talking about today is not necessarily a new topic. I think it's an exacerbated topic um, yeah. that requires more urgency and more attention than I think we we as collectively as a field have really done so. Um, so just to kind of help people think about higher ed, what was happening. And I like to think about pre-COVID and now living with COVID times and other things that before we even got into 2020, it's not the same that kind of dramatic way, mm -hmm. we were already right. talking about challenges with um, exempt versus non-exempt employees, the ways in which some people um, did not get paid, compensated for their time. I'm thinking a lot about our live on staff who did not have great um, support institutionally for boundaries in their work. I'm thinking about um, folks that, you know, deans on call. I'm thinking about the ways in which uh, student activities folks, um, uh, fraternity sorority live di folks were doing a lot of you know on the ground programming so we were already having conversations about workloads sustainability uh yes. burnouts we were already mm -hmm. talking about discrepancies in salaries especially at the entry um, um mid level in particular yeah. um, we were already talking about challenges of not being able to sustain at different institutions because there wasn't opportunities for growth or support or have you we were already talking about climate around racial justice, uh, decolonization, queer Come trans on. issues, immigration, and how these climates were very challenging for minoritized folks. So these are not, now, okay, forget also, disability. We're already talking about the ways in which folks for a variety of disabilities did not have full access to mm -hmm. higher education and employment. So these are not new topics. I think there were some conversations or rumblings we should look at this. But COVID happened, right? And I don't, I wasn't just COVID. I think also we were dealing with grapplings of racial justice, our social political climate would have you. I want to name that for some people navigating COVID, they got the privilege of being able to, hey, A, have a job, right? I knew a lot of colleagues who mm -hmm. 
were furloughed or in the middle of searches and could not find anything in a sustained way. I knew some people that had the ability, the privilege to be able to work from home and work remotely, while some people still had to very much be on campus navigating their personal safety and what have you. Mm-hmm. I think what we learned, I think, are collectively a couple of things is that one, some of the work in higher education that we used to say, not we, but some people would say it's not possible to do in different ways became really possible, right? I think mm-hmm. a lot about my time running an identity-based center during COVID from home, right? And I was always told that I had to be around, be available for students, what have you. And I was able to run support groups and events and new bias response from my living room. Mm-hmm. And so I think there became, I think, personal and collective questioning about why are we doing this way? This is the way that I personally want to do it. Am I really truly supported? Is my institution really thinking about me? So that is a larger backdrop in which we were entering, in which I was entering in terms of my presidency. Um, you know, I will shout out Vernon Wall was the first um, association for, for us <laughs> who had to first deal with COVID. And then mm-hmm. Danielle Morgan Acosta also had to. And so a lot of their lens, while this was very much um, an attention of the association, they couldn't quite get to it. They were trying to respond to how do we do a virtual conference? <laughs> how do we, you know, support our members as we're navigating things? So I had the first opportunity to really focus on this. Um, I will also name that before we even got into COVID times, it was a strategic priority of the association. We had a strap plan we had just released in 2020. And one of our areas, we have five areas of focus and one of our buckets is association leadership and presence. And it was specifically naming, how do we retain our employees in higher education? How do we address Mm -hmm. burnout? And how do we Mm -hmm. do that in particular for our entry level? Um, There's a lot of research and data that entry-level folks in particular are the ones to leave the field the quickest and the hardest to retain for a variety of reasons. And so we knew that before all these dynamics were happening, and that was an intention. Um, So I named it in my presidential address. It was something I had already been thinking about. Mm -hmm. Um, And I literally, within the first month (laughs) of being um, president, wrote a charge. And what was important to me were a couple of things I was writing it is that, um, and I'll name, it's fair, NASA had put out a report, uh, Coupa HR had put some things out. So we were already seeing a lot of reports about what was happening. Right. And, and I'm going to be candid and say, they were telling us what we already knew, right? Yeah. They were telling mm-hmm. us a lot about what we knew about salary and wanting to go remote and these different things, but there wasn't a lot of adding the conversation about minoritized population. There wasn't a conversation about the levels. There wasn't a conversation about different college types. And so when I thought about this charge, I wanted to make sure we were adding to the conversation and not just repeating it. Um, being an ACPA longtime you know, loyalist, we we like to have tangible resources for our members they can use right now, like not to, so they could actually implement it, actually make a change on the campus. And so as I was writing it, it was very clear we had to have some usable document that our members could use immediately to impact change. Um, so all those are important to me um, overall. And so when I thought about how to do this, there were two things in my mind. And one is definitely about Rashonda and the other is about my experience through the strategic imperative for racial justice decolonization. I think some people know I was a part of that guiding document with Dr. Stephen Quay, um, Rachel Aho, uh, D.L. Stewart, uh, Dean mm-hmm. Squire, who was a part of that, uh, Melissa Jacob Beard, Flo Guido, Alex Lang. We were all, all the bigger folks that were doing it. And we got together and, and in real time in Detroit to have an in-person dialogic conversation. And from that drafted some, some of the documents. So we, I knew that was important, especially in Zoom time, we gotta be together somehow. 
Luckily, mm -hmm. we had funding to do that. And then when I thought about how do we move us from the charge to actual being in community, was Rashonda. Um, so I'm a big fan girl of Rashonda too. <laughs> I had just been following her. We have mutual, we have a lot of mutual friends, but didn't really have a chance to work together until now. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer of like, we have some shared people in common we get along with and clearly we should too. But uh, Joshana's dissertation, I was really impressed with the innovative ways that she approached research, but all the way that it was so deeply connected to community and community impact. And so I, when I thought about leadership, it was Rashonda. And so I was very grateful that she had said yes. Um, and from her saying yes, I worked with Chris Moody and her to collectively come up with a, a really big list of people uh, to join us. And so I'm gonna stop there so Rashonda can talk about how we got from her yes to um, being in Raleigh in the document, so. Yeah, mm -hmm. you got you got to captain the ship. How did that go? <laughs> well, that is an interesting uh, conversation of how I got there. But I do want to also shout out Chris Moody. He's been amazing yes. in helping me yeah. get all of my ducks in a row. And he makes mm -hmm. things look so easy. And mm -hmm. he just takes care of things. So shout out to Chris. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, Dre reached out because of my dissertation research. And I, I also do research around Black women in, in senior level positions mm -hmm. in student affairs. And I wrote an article about mm -hmm. it. And I, and I got her email. Mm -hmm. And at first I was like, absolutely not. I'm not taking on any <laughs> additional labor. I, you know, I was like, oh, you know, Dre knows so many of my friends. So like a friend of my friends is my friend. I was like, I don't think I can do it. But that same month, I saw so many folks on social media, particularly mm -hmm. entry-level professionals saying, the field isn't what I thought it was. Um, it's I'm, I'm not enjoying myself. Mm -hmm. I'm leaving for XYZ experience. And at first, my brain went to, well, it's a season of transition. So people are moving out of all mm -hmm. fields, right? And so I just kind of dismissed it, if I'm honest. But then I started seeing folks at the middle level and the senior level and then I started to do some mm -hmm. research and listen to the podcast yeah. um, including this podcast um, and some other podcasts and tweets and mm -hmm. folks were just sharing this same underlying issue and concern and I couldn't shrug it off anymore and so I knew something was there and honestly, in our field, I think it's easy to complain about what's not being done. I've been guilty of saying, you know, this is terrible. Someone needs to do something. Mm -hmm. And as I got, when I got Dre's email, I had to have a conversation with myself. Like, you can't just complain. You also have to be a part of the work you want to see for our profession. And so that is when I decided to connect and I wanted to bring our community together in a way that could center voices. Um, Dre gave us the charge. She wanted people at different levels, different types of people, different institutions. And I wanted to be a part of that conversation, getting all of those folks in a room so we could really talk about where our field was going. And again, it was a conversation like, if not me, then who? So I think mm -hmm. that's how we got here. Yeah. Well, I, I'm looking at the document and what I highlighted, I highlighted many things, but one of them was your call to action, which it kind of kicks off the beginning. And you end that call to action with this quote. This document is not just about the great resignation, but also about the great recruitment and retainment. It is about the greater leadership required for the profession and the work to come. This document is a call to action to build sustainable careers in higher education by dismantling systems of supremacist cultures in our work, 
This is a call for agency, regardless of where you are in the organization. It is not a moment left waiting for change to happen, but for taking responsibility and creating change. And I think both of you spoke to, there are challenges, they are real, they are not brand new. Um, and what should we do about it? And I, I as I shared with both of you, I, the both and is throughout this whole thing about the challenges and possibilities, about the difficulties and actions, about the theoretical and the practical, and the both and really connects through this. Well, and it is also broken very cleanly into three parts. What is the problem, which I think we've kind of articulated, really rooted in supremacist cultures, and then some really tangible practical recommendations. So let's begin with that second part. Um, You talk about this being rooted in supremacist culture, Rashonda. Tell us a little bit more about what that is and what the what you mean by that. Yes, I will certainly um for take those us who on can't that. see, she's dancing. Yeah. She's so excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, when when you read a document that we've been working really hard on and you yeah. have such energy around it, it, it brings it to life for us. And so I'm just I'm appreciative of your energy around it. And so I want to tell you how we got to supremacist culture as just an idea, because a person may pick up the document and say, wait, how did we get here? I thought we were talking about employment. Well, know that when we brought all of the the 20 so folks to Raleigh back in July, we first wanted to meet with intention. So before even getting to the space together, we we read Dr. Salee's book about creating sustainable careers in student affairs and really grappled with ideal worker norms. Mm-hmm. Um, also, we started to re, uh, listen to podcasts. And again, mm-hmm. Dr. Salee was on this podcast talking about it with you know Dr. Perez and some other folks. Mm-hmm. And so we started grappling with conversations that they were having. And we read some articles, some dissertations, Britt Williams' dissertation mm-hmm. about Black women in higher ed, oh my goodness. So all of those things converged, but like Dre said, we wanted to contribute something else to the conversation. We didn't wanna just regurgitate what all had been said. So on the first day of our uh, of our convening, we've talked about, okay, here's what the here's what the research says. But by the second day, we started to say, okay, now what, why are people leaving? What do we need to do? And by midday, that what do do we need to do kind of shifted to who do we need to be mm. as a field? From right? doing to being powerful. Yeah. So there was this all of this like harm that had been happening. And we started to realize that there is a culture issue happening. Oh. That was that it was a consistent thread throughout every story we heard in that room. And so we said, who do we need to be as a field? Like, what are our hopes and dreams for this profession? If we want to put something forward, what do we want that to be, to really shift where we are? And so we started having conversations about what would a current culture shift mean? And I remember um, Lena Crane was one of the people who got up. Lena Crane is a brilliant scholar practitioner and friend. Mm -hmm. She legit came to the front of the room with some PowerPoint slides she just (laughs) put together. And she said, y'all, she didn't say y'all, that's the country, Southern (laughs) person. But she said, everyone, like, I think think some of the um, conversations that we're having here today can be couched into Tima Akun's white supremacy culture. 
And at the time, I had not heard about this this framework. I had no idea what it was. But from there, Dr. Crane, she basically taught us in real time about white supremacy culture. And as she started to describe white supremacy culture, she started to talk about the ways that white supremacy culture was manifesting in higher education, how the sole purpose of white supremacy culture, which is enacted in all of us, Mm -hmm. was to divide us, to distract Mm -hmm. us, to disconnect Mm -hmm. us from society at large. And And yes, it happens. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It disconnects us from ourselves and, you know, how it works within these institutions. And Mm -hmm. so she started to talk about how all of our values, all of our norms, all of our beliefs in higher ed were rooted in white supremacy culture and how we needed to disrupt those values and beliefs. And so it was so beautifully done. And it was just a moment. And I think Dre was like, oh, this feels like a moment. And I was absolutely, (laughs) it it was a moment. Yeah, yeah. So we sat there and we started to slowly unpack the different tenets of white supremacy culture. There are actually 10 of those, but we um, looked at seven of those within the document. And I'll pull out two just for examples. One of the characteristics of white supremacy culture is this idea of fear. So fear, particularly in higher ed student affairs, is like not belonging, not being good enough, feeling afraid, right? And what this looks like in our field is, you know, you have an entry-level professional who's had to compete with other folks for their job and had to really hustle for their job. So when they actually get into their role, they don't even feel like they're good enough and they're constantly having to prove that them being selected was a good decision. Mm-hmm. So then they're feeling like they have to stay late and they feeling like they have, they can't make any mistakes and they're, they're feeling like they have to be perfect in their role. And so white supremacy just lays out that fear of not being good enough. You're never good enough. You don't mm-hmm. belong here. You got to work twice as hard all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the perfectionism so, that comes with that and how toxic yeah. that is. Yep. And yeah, mm-hmm. so th- that's mm-hmm. the second one I'm going to name because I think it pairs mm-hmm. well with it. Mm-hmm. But also perfectionism is the second, one of the second characteristics that we're talk- we talk about. There's only one way to do things. Um, we don't think about any other way. There's only one leader. There's no appreciation for folks. You just keep working to do everything right. No room for wrong, right? And so that looks like, you know, folks being inflexible, with how we show mm-hmm. up to work like Dre was mentioning mm-hmm. we just proved that we can work from home and do our jobs right we mm-hmm. just proved that we could why are we now saying oh no there's no way that we can do that well mm-hmm. that's because we think that there's only one way to do mm-hmm. our jobs and not to think about all of the the students and staff that were so encouraged about being able to work from home um, and so those are two examples of characteristics and domains that we named in the document, but we also mentioned antidotes to white mm-hmm. supremacy culture because uh, Tima Okun mentions antidotes in her document as well. Mm-hmm. So again, we're centering mm-hmm. ideal worker norms and white supremacy culture, how mm-hmm. it interplays and works in higher education, and then what can we do to interrupt some of those norms that we've all been taught. So 
So it's not mm-hmm. just white folks who, you know, contribute to these norms. It's all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's how we can move higher education forward by disrupting some of these characteristics. So I'll stop. Well, j- just as you say, you know, it's all of us that are contributing to this and all of us that need to be part of the solution. So what does that mm-hmm. mean for um, how do we all engage, engage in different ways to, to be a part of it? Dre, what do you want to add here before we yeah. get to the antidotes? Sure. Yeah. So what was on my mind as Rashonda was talking was urgency, right? And mm-hmm. that's another lieutenant. And I, both from a, ma- a micro and a macro, the micro example I give is, you know, I think about the way that we have to rapidly respond to emails at all hours of the day, that we got to get these programs out as soon as possible, like without really thinking about the how or the why or the purpose. And so I, I think one thing is also really important about urgency that I think is really tethered to you know, what was happening um, uh, around 20, the last couple of years is that there's been this urgency to get back to normal, whatever normal was, right? And without pause, and I used to make these jokes on social media about like, it's going to be like a light switch. I have a, We should be slowly like turning on the dimmer, right? And I knew mm. that we would, as a collective higher ed, would want to just flip back to the way oh. campus was status quo before without thinking about how we could do the work differently and taking that pause. And I think that was definitely at play when we think about the ways that I saw, even on my own campus, and even even I can own as myself as a, as a then hiring person to see the way I had to rapidly put jobs out as soon as possible without thinking, is this the same job that I really need now to best mm-hmm. serve my students in my department? I was so concerned about getting people in on the campus in person, not even mm-hmm. thinking about safety or whatever, so quickly that I think I made some mistakes. I think other people did too, to really rush. And I think people were making choices about like, that's not the environment I want to go back into. That's not how I want to feel in my work mm-hmm. environment. So I, I think the urgency, and it's still a part of us. I think there's still that feeling in the air that we quite, can't quite let go of that is quite harmful overall. Yeah. Yeah, Dre. And we've been socialized around it. And so it's been really hard to put it down. For some mm-hmm. of us who started mm-hmm. this work years ago, this yeah. is how we learned that mm-hmm. this is what we learned is the work. So even while we as a task force were grappling through these characteristics, we had to do our own unlearning and still Mm -hmm. are, but right. But that's what we want our um, members to do is to grapple with it, Mm -hmm. with these um, domains. Mm -hmm. And the unlearning, right? Mm -hmm. What unlearning, unlearning uh, white supremacy. And you you begin with white supremacy, but you also open it Mm -hmm. up into supremacist culture in general, dominant thinking, and some of the things Mm -hmm. that Dre mentioned around disability and religious oppression and so much more, all of that kind of weaving together. Um, but also, um, you know, some of us have been in student affairs professionals for a long time. And uh, we have a lot of bad <laughs> habits, right, that we need we to unlearn. We right? do. We do. It's things, terrible. Right? <laughs> and I think for some of our, our newer professionals, um, we're so quick to to teach them our bad habits and, and the way we always do things. Mm-hmm. You 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 say in the document collectively we ask two questions. Collectively ask one: How might a supremacist culture influence contemporary workforce changes? And two: What can be done to reimagine a new higher education workplace? And I love how you uh, have deep conceptual theoretical analysis of the problem. It's wonderful. It's revealing, and you have some super practical, pragmatic action items 
that come along with this, which you uh, frame as antidotes, which I just love, right? We want to understand the disease and also the antidote to that. We're not going to have a time to get to them all. We're going to try and play with them here a little bit. But Rashonda, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the antidotes and uh, recommendations for action? Sure, sure. So I want to name that antidotes is actually a part of um, Okun's language. And so we're cool, but we're not that cool. We took that language directly <laughs> from that framework. So I do want to honor our work in that. Uh, but I want to say that we are all about practical recommendations in our field. In the words of Dr. D.L. Stewart, student mm -hmm. affairs is an applied field. Mm -hmm. So if nothing else, we want people to, in real time, like Dre was saying earlier, use the document. Think about where they are in their career. Think about what questions needs to be asked in real time. And so that's what we wanted. So using a Coons framework, using ideal worker norms and conversations across the task force, we mapped out appropriate antidotes or solutions to our work. And we thought about them in different, in four different areas, right? So recruitment and hiring, training and development, administrative structure, and even compensation and morale. And we split them up in this way because we wanted this document to be really accessible for folks, for folks who just want to skim, read quickly, give them the meat. We wanted to include the meat in this third section. And, and I'll say so, it's really well organized in that way. The three parts, these five or four components, it's really well organized for that. So we thank you for helping us readers through the journey. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we know what it's like to get lost in a document mm -hmm. and we don't want anybody to have any excuse about why they didn't know how mm -hmm. to move forward. So we gave yeah. clear instruction. That's There's important. even numbered lists and bullet points and charts. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, we love a chart. And so I'm going to give an example of um, one of my favorite anecdotes. Mm -hmm. And um, just give some some thoughts around that. So one of my favorite ones is to reshape marathon job interviews to focus on what is essential to understanding candidates and consider what can be learned by employers and candidates using other parts of the hiring process. Mm -hmm. So what that essentially saying is, why are we doing these marathon interviews, right? As a field, you all think about this. How many of us, have been invited to campus for a two day long interview, back to back, no mm -hmm. lunch being had. Um, I identify as a fat body person. So having to like wear a blazer and traverse across campus and you're hot and you're tired. And by the end of the day, by the end of your second day, you don't even care if you have the job because you just want to go home, right? <laughs> you're just like, <laughs> I don't, I did all I can. Mm -hmm. I'm exhausted. I just want to yeah. go home. And so, in this antidote, we're like, how can we reshape marathon job interviews? What would it look like if we we centered what is essential, most essential in this hiring practice? Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Dobbs, one of the task force members said mm -hmm. in a conversation, like, we need to stop asking, like, what's your favorite color, red and blue? What does this mm -hmm. mean? Like, how can we be more intentional about these questions? Mm -hmm. How can we be, um, how can we build the space where, you know, only the most important folks are included in the conversation, like who needs to be included and who doesn't. We don't need to waste the whole 
departments, Tom, in this one interview sp space across months as, at a time. Mm -hmm. um, do we even need to invite people to campus anymore, mm -hmm. right? Just from COVID, we learned that we can do some really amazing things virtually, even virtual yeah. tours and mm -hmm. um, thinking about things in that way. And so that's an example of one of the areas that we really wanted to nuance is mm -hmm. just thinking how we can do the campus interview. And so I have more, but I'll, I'll wait in case Dre wants to share sure. um, yeah. any any of hers. Well, this one that you're mentioning, I think it came up and, and was part of the emphasis for impetus for our conversation around a hiring episode, which, you know, I had people talk about these marathon interviews. And one person yep. said, we bragged about our day and a half process and how mm -hmm. every candidate would get sick at the end of it. We bragged about that with pride. And yeah. he's just like, I, I, what were we thinking? What were we doing? Mm -hmm. And so uh, to me, that says not only do we do it, but we pride ourselves mm -hmm. on dehumanizing mm -hmm. process. Like Listen. how integrated into our thinking is it that we would brag about a process mm -hmm. that made people literally ill mm -hmm. and sick? And how right. do we unpack that? That's the unlearning. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then Keith, don't let us search fail. Because right. then you're like, oh, we got to do it again. All like, over again. <laughs> you are you are irritated in the next group of interviews. Yes. And it has nothing to do with the candidate, exactly. but you're just exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. we've been doing it for years. So, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Unlearning. Unlearning. Yeah. Yes. Dre, what are yeah. some other antidotes that you love? Yeah. So, I mean, it's probably because it's on my mind right now. Um, so, a part of my role at Davidson is um, I do a lot of staff recruitment and retention. And I've just got done, I'm actually not finished, but I'm in the middle of onboarding our con our cohort of new mm -hmm. staff. And, you know, so often we talk think a about, little bit about the size of that cohort because I think that's important. Sure. Yeah. So, we're a small liberal arts college. Uh, my division's about uh, 70 some odd people. And I had to onboard um, about 22 people. Um, which is, you know, <laughs> like it's, a it's, it's a good, it's a third of us. Yeah, it's a good mm -hmm. amount of people. And so, you know, I used to make these jokes last year, like, as I got all the emails of other people exiting, like, who will be on our campus? I'm, and I just want to name and give a shout out to my campus and my colleagues, like the fact that we were able to recruit very thoughtfully in a very short amount of time is remarkable. Mm -hmm. But I'm also noting um, how exhausted my my colleagues who are deans and department heads are. Mm -hmm. to do that. And so one thing that I think um, is, is, is related to the document in a way, my supervisor created my role in particular to be the mindful person of our staff and retention and our professional development to look at supervision. And one thing that's been on my mind about onboarding this particular cohort is that so often, and I was kind of guilty of this too when I was a department head, that we focus on the job function. Mm -hmm. Making sure they know the skills, maybe the department to do the job, but we forget about who they are as people, right? So I'm a woman mm -hmm. of color, queer, queer woman of color, that, and so mm -hmm. just a small thing of like I needed, I needed a space to get my hair done, or to a spaces for doctors and mm -hmm. things like that. And so trying to have a mindfulness of our staff as full employees who, whether they have families or not, that they need their own personal needs taken care of, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think a lot about, you know, particularly campuses where maybe um, there are one of the few folks of color, a few queer people there, and they need to find community and connection. And if, if our staff are not fully happy as human beings, Come they on. will not be fully successful employees on campus. And so we have mm -hmm. to think about not just the job, 
not just the climate of the campus and understanding the alleged cultural norms and traditions of our campus and belonging, but really belonging to the community that they are now, that they have moved or are kind of integrating into as well. And so I've been thinking a lot about how do I get my staff linked into what Charlotte is has this exciting or what mm-hmm. um, different, um, you know, a color queer, um, I'm, I think a lot about um, mental health and wellness and how do I mm-hmm. make sure that they are mm-hmm. connecting to local doctors that, you know, can work mm-hmm. on variety of schedules. And so that's been on my mind a lot. Well, of, CrossFit's my um, life. Where can I go? Me too. Listen. So yeah, so that was <laughs> Whatever. the first thing I, yeah. first thing I did is got a CrossFit gym when I moved here. <laughs> so, so yeah, those are really hugely important things. Yep. And I think that is going to help us over time. And I think of a if an employee who's new is seeing that the campus doesn't just want me here for the work that I do, they want me here as a person and want me to thrive here as a person, they're going to want to ideally, I hope, stick around the campus that they see values them as a human being, not just this tangible person getting a job done for the sake of our students overall. This is another yeah. thing we have in these conversations all the time is that people mm-hmm. do not want to be treated as employees no. or right. workers. They want to be treated right. like people. Right? Yes. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that's a mm-hmm. major, major shift, yeah. particularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's some generational things in there. Yes. I think there's COVID made people, uh, things people wanted before, now they don't want, they need. And they're, mm-hmm. they're saying, you know, Absolutely. this is a, a nicety. This is something mm-hmm. that has to be a part of, yes. of the conversation. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. also, but in so long, you know, before you were told to take any job, like mm-hmm. when you came out of grad school or when you had yep. your first job, you were like, go anywhere, do anything. And now I know mm-hmm. I need a black therapist. I need a yep. optician. <laughs> mm-hmm. I need a Wegmans. That's my uh, grocery store of choice. Um, mm-hmm. And there are things that we need. And I think it's okay to say that and provide yeah. new employees like well, talk, talk to us about, you know, where would you like to live or what do you need mm-hmm. for your family to be successful here? Because right. if you see me as a whole person and you give me space to set mm-hmm. up my life in a way that I feel good about home, then I'll show up to work mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Right? And so I, I love that you named that, Dre. I also mm-hmm. think we got to remind people that you can't be picky about everything. Right. You yeah. can't be picky about location and institution and function and student yeah. population. Right. Right. <laughs> you, you can be picky about some things, but you got to yeah. be open about some things. Right. So oh, they have some choices. So, so you have mm-hmm. some but you're saying mm-hmm. you're real clear with yourself mm-hmm. about what I'm picky about. Oh, and that yeah. means mm-hmm. I am flexible uh, on these things. Mm-hmm. I think people mm-hmm. get too picky about everything, have few, very few options. But people who are like, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. I'm like. <laughs> I don't know how to help you. <laughs> right. You need something to narrow the exactly. scope a little bit. Yeah. One or two things. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Well, um, I, I think we're going to try and do something fun here. There's so yeah. many great antidotes and recommendations. Uh, yeah. We're never going to get to them all. Uh, we get two really great in-depth examples. We're going to move to the rapid fire round, right? Um, and so <laughs> they're dancing again. <laughs> um, so three, Hiya. three real quick. Uh, and I think we'll we'll go back and forth. Rashonda, we're going to start with you. Which antidote do you see as the simplest to implement? What is just so easy to implement? Oh, I the marathon interviews one got to, that's got to be it because Just don't do it. Don't do it. And I think we've recycled yeah. these schedules. I was guilty. I would just copy mm-hmm. a schedule that I used last yeah. year and the year before and the year before that, Same. but really spacing it out, giving mm-hmm. people opportunities to use the bathroom. I think Rosie Perez said that on one of yeah. the, mm-hmm. the, uh, other podcasts people don't even have an opportunity to use the bathroom people don't have an opportunity to make a phone call take a break 
I think there's mm -hmm. some really easy ways that we can do that. And we just had to do it. So yeah. it's not going back to that one way, which is what mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. Dre, what's the simplest to implement? Other duties as a sign. We use that as a catch-all <laughs> for some really shady things. Let me be honest. Like, it's a shady way to talk about ways to kind of slip in work. And so I, I'm a big believer. You be explicit. What does that mean? Give mm -hmm. examples. Say, say specifically what that is. It's not fair to set up an employee to do these things. Um, you know, after they got the job, after probation, they may not either be aligned with their skill set or you know in their desire as a functional area. It's just it's just a really shady practice that we got to get out of. Totally. And I love how you talk about it. Talk about the both and like mm -hmm. other duties as assigned shouldn't be fifty percent of your job responsibility. Right. It should be like five percent, <laughs> like it's some occasional yes. thing yes. here and there. But <laughs> yes. if you're being told it's other duties assigned daily, then then yep. then mm -hmm. we miss. And I think we could share what some of some examples of what that mm -hmm. might look like in right. that section of our um, mm -hmm. job description. It could mm -hmm. look like sitting on a task force. It could look right. like, you know, attending this meeting. So people right. know mm -hmm. what they're getting mm -hmm. into ahead of time. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Dre, what's the most obvious recommendation for you? Mm -hmm. Performance review. I, I, I've changed my mind. <laughs> Performance review. You know, we... So often we just take what HR gives us as a way to evaluate our staff and it's never truly aligned with how we do things in higher education. And I'm, I'm mostly focusing on student life, student affairs in particular. Mm -hmm. um, if we could, I you know something I did recently with, with my staff is that I sat down and took the HR model and said, this is what this means for our department. This is what this mm -hmm. looks like. And that's another small example to kind of really unpack that is that I had my staff think about what are some behavioral goals that you have for performance review and what are some outcome goals? And mm -hmm. I think we get so caught going back to the quantity versus quantity part of Okun, um, um, supremacy, if, like, if we could talk about, yes, there may be some tangible things that you want them to be able to successfully advise or put on a program or what have you, but what are some things you really want your staff to like learn and grow from too? So that could be that you really want them to learn about how to um, do some curriculum design. You may want mm -hmm. them to think about how they are learning how to do some strategic planning. So how do we create both of those things for through a performance review is a really good one. I think we do performance reviews terribly in higher mm -hmm. education overall. So mm -hmm. yeah. Rashonda, mm -hmm. what's the obvious one to you that you thought, are we, do we really have to write this down? Isn't this so obvious? <laughs> oh my gosh. And I'll, I changed mine too, Jerry, so don't feel bad. But <laughs> I was just at SACSA in um, mm. Birmingham. And I said this in a meeting with senior level folks. And I said, can we just put the range of the salary mm -hmm. yeah. on the position description? Mm -hmm. that's it because that will let a whole lot of folks know what the expectation is right away mm -hmm. right and so I think that's something obvious that we can do that folks are doing in other industries that is mm -hmm. a game changer mm -hmm. and then folks mm -hmm. will know exactly what they're getting into no one's time no one's time is wasted folks are not surprised there's none of that I think that will be something simple we could do um, if we could work with our HR folks to move mm -hmm. forward on that. And it's mm -hmm. a huge yeah. equity it's a huge uh, issue for sure. Yeah. Well, we talked about the simplest and the obvious. What's the most powerful or most transformative? What's the one that you think, boy, if we can do this, that would be a game changer, Rashonda? Oh, that's a, that's a tough one. I was going to talk about... Um, I was going to talk about the training and onboarding. Should I talk about that? 
Yeah, I'll talk about that. I have a lot. I got a lot going on in my brain. Mm-hmm. My my brain's going a million miles a minute. Um, but I would say supervision is is and was one of the hardest mm-hmm. things I've ever had to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No one prepared me for doing it. Mm-hmm. I only went through one supervisory training at my institution, and it was all about, you know, how the institution can avoid getting sued. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I would say for, if we could really, really, really center ongoing supervisory training for folks. Mm-hmm. As you get new people, you need to relearn and unlearn some things. As the institution shifts, as we're coming out of, out of COVID or through COVID, we need to all do a refresher. Mm-hmm. And it needs to be space where people can actually share what's going on so we can also learn from each other. But there's this such fear around doing it wrong mm-hmm. or the right to comfort that we don't talk about how hard supervision is. So for me, the most powerful thing we can do to keep people engaged at work is to work on supervision because we know mm-hmm. people don't leave an institution. Mm-hmm. They leave mm-hmm. really bad bosses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is a great example because just in you're talking about it, you're, you're threading this very practical example back to the supremacist culture and perfection and mm-hmm. can't make mistakes and comfort mm-hmm. and all of that. It's, it's all really tied in. So you can see how yeah. this is not just a, yeah. a mm-hmm. nice fancy social justice framework it really organizes things what's the powerful transformative one for you yeah so i'm thinking a lot about morale but i'm also thinking a lot about um it's been on my mind i haven't quite figured out the way to i've been trying to figure out how to write about it and talk about it but i'm still going through it myself i'm so excited for what's coming next now (laughs) me too i feel like (laughs) i feel like higher ed is grieving right i I feel like we've been and and i'm deeply intimate with grief um i lost my parents about 11 years ago um, so I know grief well, and I've been feeling that collectively, that we're collectively mourning what higher ed was and what it could be. We're, we're le- there's literally staff, unfortunately, that passed away. I just got one of those emails recently, you know, mm-hmm. and that was I've been grappling with that overall, but also like, you know, we've had loss in our own lives, you know, a loss of different things. And so I, I really am thinking a lot about um, our morale. I'm thinking a lot about um the fatigue that even mm. though some for some people it may feel better they may have to staff they're not maybe one person offices anymore but they're still tired right they're still the student issues we're dealing with are still going on um and so I've been thinking a lot about how do we create spaces of rest and better boundaries and better care um mm. and I did I did I did talk a lot with that recently with my symposium with the Ash president, but so good. <laughs> it was I, so good. Yeah. And one thing I've been like dreaming about, and I've been saying it for years is I would love a sabbatical for staff. Like I would love yes. to just take, you know, a semester or have a complete summer off where I can just recover, take care of myself, like clear my head. And then whenever I do get some little bit of actual true rest, I come back to the work more like energized, more clear, new ideas, like ready. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like the last few years in particular, it's been a different type of like, an exhaustion plus grief mm-hmm. that I just never can quite recover from. And I wish you could find ways on our campuses. So whether that's short-term sabbaticals, I've been dreaming about going to semester at sea. I I had to think about leaving my job completely to do that. Or mm-hmm. just even just taking a minute just to like, I don't know, like declutter my house. Like I would love mm-hmm. that we would be able to create those more organically mm-hmm. in our work without feeling like I may have to lose my job or make a harder decision mm-hmm. or 
that the work can't go on without me. So I, I wish we could or, be in that conversation more. Or wait till yeah. it gets so bad that you qualify for FMLA. I yes. was just about to say yes. that, Key. Yes. I was That's just about to say that. That is That's a thing. Real. Yeah, and I have a partner who works in non the nonprofit world who I we argue that we do the same work, but they are allowed to take sabbaticals in that mm-hmm. job and they are staff. And it said they take the sabbatical because the work can be so challenging that they mm-hmm. need the space to breathe, yeah. do whatever, take care of themselves and then come back to the work. Mm-hmm. in a with a more fresh perspective right mm-hmm. and i'm just like how how are we not there yet <laughs> exactly <laughs> well yes we're running out of time folks uh as we knew we would <laughs> this is called this podcast is called student affairs now we always like to end with what are you thinking troubling pondering now and if you want to share where folks can connect with you where might they be able to do that dre yeah What's with you? Now? Yeah, we're probably going to out us when we're recording this, but um, I'm thinking heavily about um, violence on our campus. And so um, at the time of this recording, we just got word about a shooting at the University of Virginia. And so I'm just thinking very heavily about not only the loss of life, but, you know, I'm thinking about clearly there are staff that are now having to step in and support a variety of people and families and how that's compounded upon many other things. And um, so that's been very heavily on my mind. So heavy, um, but that's where my mind is. Um, in terms of connecting with me, um, I'm on the, I'm the social. <laughs> so I'm more of a basic person these days. I am on Twitter at Dre Domain. Um, I'm also um, at ACK Prez on Twitter for a little bit longer. Um, you can Google me for my email address and I am on LinkedIn and by all means, you're happy to contact me at any time. Awesome. Yeah. Rashonda, what's with you now? I think Dre and I are on the same page because I definitely Mm -hmm. was going to mention some of that grief and like where we are in the world Mm -hmm. and and how I just woke up with a heavy heart. Um, But I think aside from that grief, there's also joy. Mm -hmm. There's also a hopefulness that we have. We, the two of us, the three of us would not be here if we didn't hope for change. Mm -hmm. And so what's on my heart is as we're moving through this season of grief and love, that we can also tell the truth with care and we can hold that and we can move up towards joy and towards hope for the future of our field. And that people truly use the documents that we've provided um, as a jumping off point to get them started to think differently about our work and to have hard, hard conversations again from a place of love. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm pondering and um, how you can reach me. That's a great question. Uh, if you're coming to ACPA, which you should be, you should sign mm-hmm. up today um, unless unless ACPA already happened. Uh, you can come to convention um, in March in New Orleans. We'd love to talk to you there. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn at Rashonda Breeden. Don't know, lo- know how much longer I'll be on Twitter, but for mm-hmm. now I'm there as Dr. Breeden. Um, and so, yeah, mm-hmm. feel free to engage with us because we are regular folks and we mm-hmm. like people. I do like people. I do. I actually do. Uh, it's good to have that reminder. Well, I, I love that you you close this out there, Rashonda, because I think uh, as Jay's talking about sabbatical and the space and time mm-hmm. for grief, not just sabbatical, but space in our day, space in meetings. Um, you're really bringing in the both and uh, of grief and other difficult emotions. And where do we need sabbatical or space in our day for joy and love mm-hmm. and liberation and 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 all of those things? And 
sometimes we crowd that out too. We don't make time for that. And, and, right. and that, how you articulated that, that both and essence is all throughout the document. Things are hard and they can be better. This is difficult and I do it too. Um, there's theory and solutions and it really comes through all throughout. And it, it just feels very, like the folks who contributed to this really get what it's mm-hmm. like, have been there, have been through mm-hmm. it. And aren't talking down to you they, they're talking with you and mm-hmm. i think that really comes through through all of it yeah. Yeah. thank you well this has been terrific uh congrats on the report and getting it out it should be available to acpa members and then maybe down the road open to uh available to others who want to be able to access it uh it's a really great document if you've liked this conversation be sure to check it out there's so much more in this report uh that'll be really helpful to folks than what we've been able to talk about here today and thanks to our sponsors of today's episode Leadership partners with colleges and universities to create transformational leadership experiences, both virtual and in person, for students and professionals with a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world. Leadership offers engaging learning experiences on courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community building. To find out more, visit leadership.org slash virtual programs or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And how will your institution rise to reach today's socially conscious generation? Today's students are report commitments to safety, well-being, and inclusion are as important as academic rigor when selecting a college. It's time to reimagine the work of student affairs as an investment, not an expense. For over 20 years, Vector Solutions, which now includes the Campus Prevention Network, formerly Everify, has been the partner of choice for more than 2,000 colleges, universities, and national organizations. With nine efficacy studies behind their courses, you can trust and have full confidence that you're using the standard of care for student safety, well-being, and inclusion. Transform the future of your institution and the community you serve. Learn more at vectorsolutions.com slash studentaffairsnow. And as always, a huge shout out to our producer, Nat Ambrosi, who does all the behind the scenes work to make the three of us look and sound good. And if you're listening today and not already receiving our newsletter, please visit our website at studentaffairsnow.com, scroll to the bottom, check out the archives, and add your name to our MailChimp list. My name is Keith Edwards. Thanks again to our fabulous guest today and to everyone who is watching and listening. Please make it a great week. Thank you both.